I wanted to start just with prayer and then dive into just a little bit of a personal confession, and then we'll go from there. So hopefully you guys are ready. You can turn uh, in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We're going to be in verses 12 through 28, the last chunk of Scripture there, and um, hopefully ready to receive what the Lord has for us uh, this morning. So Father, we thank you for who you are, for what you are about, and for uh, your desire for us to know you in your fullness. So guide us now into all truth. Your word's very clear that Holy Spirit, that's what you do. You remind us of everything that we've been taught in Christ. You draw our hearts back to them of your revealed will in your word. And so we come now sitting under your word. May it speak over our circumstances. May it blow out of our boxes and may it help us to see you as you truly and fully and rightly are. We love you. And so we give this next chunk of time to you in our hearts and through our ears that we might listen and be ready to receive. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. So we're going to be looking at 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 through 28. And there's um, Paul in that chunk of Scripture feels a little bit like somebody who is, uh, his mind is full of a ton of things, and so he feels like he goes on a number of tests. Then do this, no this, this, that. He's all over the map. Um, and I've always loved the passage because he talks about admonishing the idle and encouraging the faint-hearted and helping the weak, and it's really a counseling paradigm. We'll get to that. But there is a particular part of that passage that he says, do not quench the spirit and do not despise prophecies. And so one of the things that I want to do this morning is I want to just take a step back and I want to just confess, um, there are some passages, and, and this is... I love preaching God's word straight through. Give me a chunk of scripture, let me go straight through it. Why? Because I can't hide. I can't somehow create a, a pet theology based on my experience or my comfort or my preference. If I have to go through God's word, the way it's revealed, the way it's written, that means I just, I gotta do it. And that's my greatest advocacy for why we preach through the word like we do here. Because I don't want us to just kind of be people who pick and choose. And so that necessarily means that sometimes it puts us in places that are uncomfortable. You haven't felt the discomfort, okay? You, you are arriving here pretty much having already experienced your whole week. There's a lot that's happened this week. But I guarantee in this room, I'm probably the one who's thought most about what's coming in the next 30 minutes. And I'm the one who's labored over it. And I'm the one who's prayed, the one who's really concerned. And I'm the one who's seen the issue of prophecy in particular be something that freaks people out. I've seen people who don't know how to handle this. I've been one of those people who don't know how to handle this. So true confessions, I am woefully inadequate to teach for the next half hour. I am woefully inadequate to share with you from knowledge or experience or from, I'm, I just am. And my hope is that everybody here feels the same way whenever you open the Word of God, that it's His Spirit that would instruct us and help us. Um, but just right now, I just want to confess, like, I know that things could get dicey, and I'm okay with that. I am. But I, um, too, and I hope you've come in a position of humility, um, hopefully like I, I'm trying, <laughs> right? It sounds weird to say I'm trying to be humble. Um, but, but I really am. And so if there's some things that are said this morning that like cut to the heart of what you've always believed, um, 
I don't apologize, but I do uh, want for you to first examine the word before you grill me. And, um, and hopefully this will be something that's edifying. So there are five kind of main points that we're going to look at today, and I think Caleb's going to just put them up on the wall. Um, the, the passage overall just has all these chunks of Scripture, right? Um, in, in verses 12 and 13, he's talking about respecting and loving and leaders that you have, and I'm going to read it in a minute. And then he talks about how you respond to all kinds of people in verses 14 and 15, and all of his circumstances, like we're to pray in the Spirit at all times about everything that's happening. And then he's talking about um, the fullness of his Spirit. That's what I just have been mentioning. And the last one is talking about all of his grace. Now, I'm going to mention each one of those, kind of in a, in, not necessarily in a token way, but I am going to go through each one um, briefly. But there are two that I'm really going to park on, and, and I'm doing that because I believe I'm being obedient to what God is asking. This is not something that I've arrived at lightly. So uh, I'm going to be focusing primarily on number two, four. But I'll, I'll go through all of them briefly so that you note takers, I won't mess up your day. Because I'm sure there's stuff <laughs> in the bulletin that I sent like on Monday, and it's all, you know, kind of changes. So, um, Let's just read God's word, and then we'll unpack it. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. We urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays evil for evil, but seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. May the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under the oath, under oath before the Lord to have this letter, brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. So Father, we come to you in your word. We just want to be renewed in our mind and in our heart. So first thing he does is he focuses in on how we are to respond to leaders. Now, um, he gives three primary words. He talks about respect, he talks about esteem, and he talks about love. Okay? Um, in this current cultural moment that we find ourselves in, especially here in the U.S., um, the truth is, leadership is straight up hard. It's really hard. So if, if I could, just for a moment, um, we have uh, elders and deacons in this church who help to kind of direct the affairs of the church. If I could have every one of the elders and the deacons please stand to their feet, okay? Not everyone will be here, okay? Now, yeah, give them a hand. Now, here's, here's why, and I just want to speak a blessing over you guys for your work. It 
is not easy. You guys are making decisions that are fraught with circumstances. Everybody's going to go, you should have done this. You should have done that. I can't believe you did this. What were you thinking? Leadership in 2020 is just hard and confusing. And guess what? It's been that way ever since the dawn of man. But we're in a particular moment that is even more challenging. And so when we're told to respect, we acknowledge our leaders. And from the point of uh, esteem, that means that we, we consider them highly. We recognize that the job that God has given them to do, the job that God has given me to do, for example, is to carry something that, that not everybody in this room has to. And so um, it's important that we come respect and esteem and ultimately in love. And again, that peace that we start to see is, is unity that's only found in Jesus. So maybe asking yourself from a truth to life perspective some hard questions. Um, do you find yourself diminishing the leadership here at this church? In your conversations? I can't believe those stupid elders doing da 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 da. I can't believe, right? Can't believe we spent money on carpet. Those deacons don't know what they're doing. All right? It's so easy to do that. Isn't it? So easy. So ask yourself some hard questions. Am I diminishing those in the me? So, so broaden that principle out beyond just this church. What would it be like if we didn't respect or esteem or love our leaders in a family, on a sports team, in a nation, in the world? What happens? It is a total lack of unity. It's a total lack of peace. And notice how Paul finishes verse 13 when he says, be at peace among yourselves. The result of us respecting, esteeming, and loving is what? It's peace. <laughs> like, uh, peace is in short supply right now. I want it. I hope you do too. Number two, God is about all of us. The whole person. And if you really think about it, I didn't mention this earlier, but the picture that all of these verses get at is that God's work in us leads us to do God's work through us. Because he wants to equip us to be people that love the world around us. He wants to equip us to be people who are light and not darkness. And so he gives us this tip in verses 14 and 15, where he says that I urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. So if I could just say it in this light, that this is a, this is a counseling paradigm. You're like, well, Doug, that's counseling. That's kind of like what you do a lot of the time, a lot of the days. Not all of us are good at that, yeah? But God calls all of us to be counselors in some respect. And what Paul does here is he points us to a very clear, very concise, a very helpful reality. The first thing I would say is this. He says, um, he talks about the idle, the faint-hearted, and the weak. And then he undergirds that with this piece of patience. He says, you have to be patient with them all. Even if I think about my three children, and I think, I need to be patient with them all. Does patience look the same for Jada, for Oliver, and for Pierce? Absolutely not. 
There's not a parent in this room who would say, yep, I've pretty much handled all my kids' cookie cutter. I've pretty much done the same thing for every child from start to finish. Like, there are principles, right? We admonish them in the Lord, and we grow them up and teach them the scriptures. And we, we, There are principles that are the same from child to child. But the ways in which I engage a particular child and their temperament and their bent is totally different. And this is what Paul is saying. He talks about this idea of admonishing the idol. Some translations actually talk about that being... The term idol in the Greek is actually a military term for someone who is self-willed walking to their own beat. That doesn't sound like a lazy person necessarily, although it could be. A lazy person walks to their own beat or sits, however you want to say it. But it says that for that person, you need to like admonish them. But then he talks about this idea of the faint-hearted. And the faint-hearted is just, I love, uh, you, you could literally render faint-hearted as, in, in the Greek, it comes out as, as sounding small-souled. Have you ever thought about what that sounds like? Like somebody who is faint-hearted is somebody who is just, like they're easily crushed. Like just in your mind, if you can't think of buddy, anybody who's easily crushed, you're probably that person. I'm not trying to be rude. There are gifts to that. The person who is easily crushed is sometimes the person who is excellent at just coming alongside somebody because they know what pain is like. And so Paul says, right, patience with that person is not an admonishment. What happens if you admonish, admonish or correct firmly or sternly somebody who's faint-hearted? Well, you crush them. You totally crush them. Now, that doesn't look like this, does it? Not at all. And then he says, the weak. Now, this is, um, we're to help the weak. The weak is someone who are, I said, should say are, people who, um, who lack moral strength or courage or will. This is... Um, the example that he gives in chapter 4, verses 2 through 8, where he is, he's encouraging people to abstain from sexual immorality. And he's doing that because weakness is present. Meaning, we don't intentionally put ourselves in situations where we test our strength on purpose. Right? We, don't, we don't go, yeah, I guess, you know, being an alcoholic, it's not a big, you know, big deal if I go hang out at the bar four nights a week. Actually, probably unwise right? Like you might be pretty weak in that situation. But Paul is saying, okay, how do you show patience to someone who's weak? The way that you show patience to someone who's weak is that you help them. It's like, hey, how are you? Not bad. I'm just up here at the bar. Cool. I'm going to be there in three minutes. I'm going to pick you up and I'm going to give you a ride home, right? That's that's how you show patience to a weak person. You come alongside someone who lacks moral strength. You come to someone, and this is what Paul is saying. It's so important. Why do we do that? Well, Romans 5 is clear. It says that God demonstrates his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were weak, Christ died for us. Christ came alongside and helped us when we couldn't help ourselves. And you could think of every circumstance there. Maybe this would be helpful. Um, if you have a burner, like in your kitchen, 
I'm assuming everybody has something, whether it's electric or gas. And, and you have a stovetop. You could look at these three temperaments pretty, by way of analogy, pretty full manner, right? Um, on the one hand, a kid who doesn't know how to use the burner, but brazenly and, and, and arrogantly approaches the burner to use it. They're like four. <laughs> and you're thinking, yeah, that's pretty unwise. Um, that person would be like the idle one who needs admonishment. No, 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 no. Don't touch that stove. If you do, you're going to burn the flesh off your fingers. And the person has to go, oh, okay. So then you gently instruct them after the admonishment happens. Okay, well, what about the, the person who's faint-hearted? The person who's faint-hearted already touched the stove, <laughs> right? Burned their finger, and, and they are not going to benefit in that moment from a stern correction. What in the world were you thinking? Not at all. What they benefit from is mom getting down on one knee and holding out her arms and wrapping her arms around the child who is weeping and saying, it's going to be all right. Let's get a pack of ice and we'll put some Neosporin on this and we'll get through this. But what about the weak person? The weak person is the one who wanders into the kitchen and sees the flame and is like, oh, I kind of want to touch. I kind of want to touch that. And they keep getting closer, right? That person needs help. That person needs a mom who's going to play defense and kind of step in between the burner and be like, you know what? I know that you really can't perceive all the dangers of that fire. It's there. And so that's what patience looks like. This is what Paul is talking about, patience with all people. You see, if God's work in us leads to God's work through us, we have a recognition that he has shown us patience. And patience looks different to different people. Maybe from a truth-to-life perspective, you could be asking yourself this question. Um, am I idle, faint-hearted, or weak? Just by, by normal constitution, by the way that I carry myself, by the way that I live, am I one of those three things? And, and what do I find to be most useful about how I overcome a particular challenge or situation? Or you could flip that and you could ask another question. Is this person that is, that is right in front of me, this child of mine that I'm dealing with, or this coworker that I'm dealing with, are they idle, faint-hearted, or weak? What's the appropriate response that would be useful for them to see the love of Christ? Does that make sense? And hopefully that's, that's how we begin to, de to disciple and develop robust relationships that have patience at the center. So we've got all of his, all of his people, and then we look at all of his circumstances. And really the idea here is just that love for God no matter what. No matter what's happening. In verses 16 through 18 it says, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. So there's two times in Thessalonians that Paul says directly, this is the will of God. The first one is abstain from sexual immorality. The second one is this idea that you are to pray continually, that you are to give thanks always, right? He's, he's pointing to what is the will of God for you. I love those three words, rejoice, pray, and then give thanks. There's, there's an idea here of 
all the circumstances that are happening. And maybe it's helpful if we say this, um, if God is sovereign over all, would, would most of us, just in your heart you can answer this question, we, would we say, yes, God is sovereign over all, over everything? I would say yes. You know, Genesis 1 starts out with some of the most important words in all of Scripture. In the beginning, God. That means before the beginning was God. That means he would start, Right? And you, you flip, turn your Bible all the way to Revelation 22, right? Jesus is returning. And so the very plan of God from start to finish will be and is being realized. God is sovereign over it all. Everything. Everything that's happening. That's why Job says to his wife in Job chapter 2, verse 10, he, he, he says very clearly, carefully, patiently, um, are we only to take the good from God and not the evil also? Meaning, everything that happens, you know, when, when you wash a fruit or a vegetable and you put it in like a little, it's called, or a strainer of some sort, right? it holds on to what's good and it lets all the dirty water pass out, pass below it. In, in kind of a similar fashion, you see how everything passes through the loving hands of God. Every evil that befalls you, every illness that you have experienced, every relational trial and difficulty, every positive and amazing thing, it all has come through the hands of God. And so he says, in that light, I want you to rejoice. I want you to pray. I want you to give thanks. This is the will of God for you. He's getting at something that I think most of us... And you're like, what do you mean? Honestly, if we practice this Job 2.10 mindset, accepting the good and the evil, that makes God mean, you know? Bad things are happening to good people. And, and I would just caution us real quick and press the brakes and just say, there's a fundamental misdiagnosis. We're not good. Right? In our natural state, apart from the redemption of Jesus Christ, his shed blood on the cross, his resurrection from the grave, I am not good. Romans chapter 3, verses 10 actually says that there's no one who do, does good. No, that, that's like pretty qualitative. That's everybody. <laughs> and, and he doesn't miss the mark there. But then in James 1, James says that every good and perfect gift is from above. And the important thing to remember then is, well, Paul must be encouraging them to consider this idea that those good things that they've experienced as a church. Remember, 1 Thessalonians, the church in Thessalonica was actually a pretty decent and healthy church. And so Paul's encouraging them to celebrate the good and prepping them for the, for the evil that's going to come, for the difficulty that's going to come. And I would say God says the same to us today, right? And so he gives them this instruction well, what's rejoicing? I actually kind of rewrite um, in my notes, I, I, I wrote above rejoice, and I just put rejoy. Think about that. It's like the recycling of those joyful moments that you have experienced where you've seen the goodness of God, and that's what, that's what like, propels you toward continual thanksgiving in all circumstances. My circumstances stink. Good. Can you not find a reason to praise 
Can you not find a reason to get up on your feet and raise your hands and say, God, you're good? Can we not do that? Are we that short-sighted and self-centered that we can't go, God, you've done something, you're doing something, and we're coming to a place ultimately bring all things under your rule and reign? Can we not do that? Like, if we, if we are so stuck in our circumstances that we can't thank God continually, we will always be stuck in our circumstances. And that's not what God has for us. Because God's work in us leads to his work through us. So all of his leaders, all of his people, all of his circumstances, number four, all of his spirit. And the idea here is that love for God wants his fullness. 19 through 22, he says this. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now, I think it's important for us to say, okay, we want to at least define the term prophecies because it's going to be real like that's a sliding scale for many of us in here some of us have grown up in the church and we're like yeah i've heard that term it kind of carries with it negative and positive connotations there are others who have no clue what that means never grew up in the church never heard this or if they have heard it it's like from like lord of the rings and some movie they watched <laughs> right so like what do we mean by prophecies and the second thing that i want to do is look at its its uh, purpose or its function and then, um, and then we're going to look at the response of the Thessalonians and, and by extension, our response and what that looks like. So first, when we start to think about the idea of prophecies, the term in, in Greek actually is about this idea of forth-telling. That, that would be like just a literal translation of what the word actually means in Greek. And you could really just say it's an utterance inspired by God. So in some respect... This, 2 Peter tells us, this is inspired by God, every word of it. And so even the reading of this word is a prophetic declaration. Now, we are a people who, who struggle with terms like declaration, because declaration sounds so final and so over the top, and so, but really, what this is after is this idea of an utterance inspired by God. It can be predictive. You saw a lot of that like in the Old Testament. It can also be very much warning driven. It can talk about like sin and repentance. But some of the things that are always happening with prophecy are um, a call back to God's standards, a conform of our will to his so that we understand our identity in him, and, and we're going to get into the purpose, form, and function. But even in Old Testament times when you saw prophets speaking, I mean, you see it in Jonah, right? 40 days and I'm going to destroy this city. Well, the people obeyed the warning so the prophecy didn't happen. There are, there are things that are helpful about what that looks like for us to consider. I would just define it like this in a real simple, straightforward way. Prophecies are speaking forth, and, and I want to focus on in merely human words, 
something the Holy Spirit has spontaneously revealed to you, the believer. Now, that's not super controversial yet. But I want to get into some maybe examples that will be helpful for us to consider this. You see, this is what distinguishes prophecy, for example, from teaching. See, teaching and preaching is is based off a text in Scripture. It's based off knowledge. Prophecy is based off revelation. Prophecy is something that God pulls back the curtain and you get to peek behind and you get to see and you're like, oh, cool. And you're like, well, do you have some examples? I'm going to give you some. I'm going to point in my own experience that hopefully will be helpful. But first, I want to look at the function and the purpose of prophecy. You see, in 1 Corinthians 14.3, we have to understand that, that prophecy is one of a number of spiritual gifts. And those gifts are listed in a number of different places in Scripture. Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14. And, um, and their use is discussed and, and, and moderated. And um, it's helpful for us to not get lost in the weeds over one particular passage versus another, but for us to go, okay, um, what is the function as, as God defines it? Because what happens is there are some who have abused every gift. You give me uh, the gift of um, teaching, right? Ephesians 4 talks about this idea of apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. And so Have you ever seen anybody who has taught false doctrine? Micah talked about this just last week where he said, I don't know that there could be more more false prophets than there are in the world right now. He's right. People who are proclaiming something that doesn't have Jesus at the center and the scripture as the foundation would be false. And so it's helpful for us to go, yeah, there are people who are false. There are people who have abused gift. The whole idea of the gift of teaching being abused, you can see people teaching false doctrine like a works-based salvation. Something like that is huge. And we're like, oh, well, that's not that big of a deal. No, it's a huge deal. (laughs) You cannot, in any respect, according to the knowledge that I've seen in Scripture, and and I hope everybody in here agrees, you cannot, in any respect, earn your way in favor toward God by your behavior, your conduct, or your thinking. Ever. You cannot, I mean, Isaiah 59 is clear, that your righteous acts, the things that you do that are good, are actually like a polluted or a dirty garment. Like, what? Like, apart from Jesus, that's the problem. And there are teachers who promote that, that abuse of the gift. Now, the issue becomes because a gift is abused, does it get put in dirty bathwater and now the baby and the bathwater are chucked out? Well, I guess we can't do teaching. No. We don't do that. You see, the call here that Paul is pushing towards is when an abuse occurs of a gift that he desires the church to participate in, and I believe that he desires us to participate in that. If there is a gift that he desires us to participate in, he doesn't just hang us out to dry when we make a mistake. There's admonishment, there's correction, there, right? all the things that Paul just talked about with the idle and the faint-hearted and the weak. Well, what happens if people do these things? I've got the scriptures for your foundation. If you're not lined up with those, big problem. Big problem. And you see this play out throughout scripture. It's like in in 1 Corinthians, they were a wild church, out of control. They had some of the coolest things going on with the gifts of the Spirit. 
Does Paul go, well, you guys are unruly and stupid, so maybe you should just kind of hone it in and like only do the safe things? No, he doesn't. He actually instructs them. And he says, what's the highest priority? The highest priority is love and unity. Gifts that you're practicing are not actually building up the church. If your gifts that you're practicing aren't exactly bringing unity, then guess what? That's a problem. But Paul doesn't throw out the proverbial baby and bathwater at the same time as a result of an abuse of a gift. He instructs. So then, what's the response of the Thessalonians? And, And by extension, ours. Well, he gives a couple of words there. He talks about this idea of quenching, despising, testing, holding, and abstaining. There's a couple of different places in Scripture where we see what our response in lack of obedience uh, to God does to the Holy Spirit. In Ephesians 4, we're told that we can actually grieve the Spirit. And we've talked about that in this series, that sometimes my sin actually gets the Spirit to a point where he's like sad. And how when you make someone sad, it's a lot harder than if you make someone angry. It's just hard. It's disarming. When someone is crying in front of you, it's hard. It's hard. But in this case, he's saying quench. You see, the Holy Spirit is often listed in Scripture as a fire, a consuming fire. And what he's saying is that the response of the Thessalonian believers was that they were acting as a wet blanket. They were, they were essentially just kind of get over the fire of the Holy Spirit. You're like, well, give some examples. Well, if you, if you look back, Apparently, some had abused prophecy by mixing dates of Christ's return with how people should respond. That's what Paul is responding to. That's what Paul is like pulling out. That's what he's trying to help them understand. And again, he comes back to this idea of unity and love. So we don't want to be people who um, just have a disposition toward God revealing something to someone them speaking it to us, we don't want to have this disposition that's like, no way that could. We want to have this disposition of open and ready, but discerning. And I'll give an example of that here in a second. So he talks then about this idea of despising prophecy. Now that's a strong word, despising. Think, have you ever despised someone or something? Like there are some people, I can remember when I was 15 years old and I had to go to work at the pig farm. And every morning I'd be waking up and I'd be like getting my boots on and I'd be standing there getting ready to walk into the feeding house. And I'm like, I despise this job. For a number of reasons, but primarily because I was young and immature. Like, it was a paycheck. It taught me a ton of things. But I didn't know that. I was immature. And so, and, and Paul is saying, that's what these people are doing. They're despising. They're treating with contempt or, or even worse, they're, they're treating as utterly worthless or despicable prophecies. Well, it's interesting because in 1 Timothy 1, you see Paul actually encouraging Timothy. He says, I I, want to remind you of the prophecies that were given about you in order that you may fight the good fight of warfare. So there's this piece that something had been prophesied over Timothy, right? Remember, Timothy was the one who was told, do not let the um, people look down on you because you are young, but set for the believers an example in life and love and speech and purity, right? He's talking about all these things, and Paul is reminding him, saying, hey, the struggle that you're coming up, recall the prophecies that were spoken over you, 
in order that you may continue to fight the good fight. Because it's going to be useful. It's going to be helpful. See, overall, the purpose that you see in 1 Corinthians 14 is that prophecy, it says, uh, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding, for their encouragement, and for their consolation. That's the purpose of New Testament prophecy. So our response can't be to quench it or despise it, but to test it. To test it. And that term test actually just means observe, check out, inspect carefully. And you say, well, why? In 1 Corinthians 13, Paul actually says this. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect, that's Jesus, when he returns, when he comes, the partial will pass away. So I take that to mean that right now, a prophetic word that somebody utters as a revelation that God gives them is subject to their fallen nature, to their moral corruptness, to their uh, lack of not hearing God perfectly. So we are called to test things. By what? By this. We're called to test by God's revealed word written to us because it's important that we never depart from Jesus as the core foundation. You see, someone's uh, revelation from God that they're going to speak to me, it's, um, it doesn't carry the same scripture-level authority. Because Paul just told us why in 1 Corinthians 13. Because we prophesy in part. We know in part. Meaning, I'm going to mess it up. I'm going to mess it up. And so the point then is, And so he gives us four, or maybe I should give us, four tests for, for prophecy. You see, in the Old Testament, prophets were people who were few in number. They were chosen by God, right? But then in Acts 2, when, when the Spirit is poured out, it says he's going to pour out my Spirit on all flesh. And, and your young men, your old men, they're going to prophesy. Your children, they'll prophesy. Meaning, now anybody can prophesy by God's grace and by the power, empowering nature of his Spirit. And so you're going, oh, okay, so now it's not just the chosen person that God has as someone who can actually speak a word of prophecy. It's anybody who comes to faith in him who could. Well, that would make sense then to test things. That would make sense that we can't just run willy-nilly. Remember, a, a church that is word only is going to just shrivel up because there's no revelation about like where are we headed next and how are we doing things, right? But a church that is spirit only is going to blow up because there's no foundational aspect of God's word. Put the two together. We're never meant to do word or spirit separately. They're together. Why do you think when God reveals himself in John chapter 4, the woman at the well, he says you worship in what? Spirit and truth. Those two things go together. It's the perfect marriage. You can't separate them. And so he gives us these four tests. The first one, and it's preeminent, is Scripture person saying align with scripture second is time um, is what this person's saying going to come to pass the third is the community of faith this is one of the reasons why it's so utterly important that you're like in a life group setting or in, in, in a setting where you're doing life with people in a smaller context 
Because then you can begin, those people who are faithful in the Lord and walking with Jesus, you can begin to test uh, someone's word to you through prayer and through the scripture and through conversation with them. It's important. And the last test would be prayer. And so once all those tests are given, then he says you hold on to what is good and you absorb of evil. So let me just read something to you um, from my journal. And I'll, I'll read it as uh, God revealing something to me and then me obediently speaking and then the result. Okay, so this is a good result. And you may ask, well, have you had bad results? Yes, <laughs> plenty. <laughs> but I feel like God uh, wants us to be uh, people of faith who step out. And so I do. And this is shared with permission, but Bonnie Donnelly in uh, July, she, out at Teeter's Lake, and it was awesome. I was overcome with how God had saved her from such a challenging life. Um, she was someone who had walked through, and she would say this, and, and again, this is with permission, she had multiple abortions. And the shame and the condemnation that she lived under was unbelievable. I had never met Bonnie at all. And then I saw her give her testimony, and I had shared this. I just sent her um, a message. I got her phone number from the office, and then I just sent her a message, and I just said, hey, this is Doug. I wanted to tell you that my heart was so encouraged as I listened to your story the other night. I have counseled some women through healing after abortion, and you're right. It leaves an indelible mark, but is the love of the Father for his blood-bought children. And you are one of them. Thank you for faithfully testifying. It reminds me of Revelation 12. We overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. Thank you for putting the delivering love of Jesus on display Wednesday evening. He was honored by your boldness. And so she responds, thank you so much. It was the day that you said in your sermon, the woman who has had an abortion, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That gave me the encouragement I needed to write my testimony. Whether you realized it or not, you were looking straight at me when you preached it. I battled with the over and over, but I would go back in my mind to when you were looking right at me and what you said to me. Now, I remember that day when I was preaching. We were walking through Romans. And if you remember, Micah did a phenomenal job preaching in Romans 8. And he must have said a hundred times in his message, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So almost like it was a song. Like everybody was like, every time, we knew where Micah was headed, right? Very predictable. But it was awesome. And it struck me. And then when I was preaching in a later passage, I remember saying, and referring back to that sermon. And I remember looking right at her. And I remember because I went back and I looked at my notes. I didn't write anything down in my notes about abortion. I remember being up and then just in a moment, the Lord just putting the idea of an abortion in my mind. And having never met Bonnie and looking directly at her and then saying that. Gave her the courage to write her testimony. And now she has a pamphlet of her testimony that she goes to... Uh, Planned Parenthood, and she waits in the parking lot for people. And when people give uh, notice that they're ready to go in, she goes up to their car and she strikes up a conversation and she gives them a pamphlet of her testimony. How awesome is that, right? Like, how incredible is that? And I look at this and I go, um, that seems pretty cool. 
And that seems pretty uh, amazing that God would work that way. Why would I want to squelch that? Why would I want to put a wet blanket on that? Why would I want to, for something that encourages the church, why would I want to just cast it aside? The answer is we don't, or I don't. And, And I think it's important for us to land there. This is what God wants for us. And I have other examples, but for sake of time, because apparently I can't preach a short sermon, um, I don't want to get into to many more of them. But truth to life, I'll just say two things. That this means that we listen. We listen for a little that God may give us. We listen for, hey, uh, go talk to that person in the grocery store line. Or we listen to, um, and, and my wife could share story after story of how someone listened to the Lord and sent her a, a verse or a picture that was like a declaration over what she was going through. They had no idea what she was going through, and it met her exactly where she was at. So this means that we listen, and number two, it means that we take risks. We don't like that term risk much, but taking a risk is saying, I believe that I heard from you, God, I'm sorry if I step up to the plate and I swing and I miss, but I'm doing this in humility and love. And then we go from there. And then finally, all of his grace. The last number of verses just points to the idea. It says this three-part declaration. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless. What Paul's talking about there is just that God wants all of us All of his grace has all of me. All of his grace has all of you. And so it just means that God is about holistic salvation, holistic disciple making. A coach that is only concerned with the skill set of his player and not the diet or the sleep habits is not a good coach. With it all. So from a truth to life perspective... That means, if, if you read that whole chunk of verses, he talks quite a bit about the idea of everything there depends on God and how faithful God is. And I would just say this from a truth to life perspective, that means that I can safely entrust myself to him. My whole self. And I know there's someone here saying, is there something I'm holding back? And you might be responding, well, I don't know. I really don't know. Look, look at your closer relationships. You won't share with those that you love the most. And you're on the track to figuring out what you hold back from surrendering to God. The thing that you won't share with the person that you view as the safest is the extent to which you aren't sharing with God. So all of his grace may not have all of you in that regard. So thanks for bearing with me. Um, I don't apologize. <laughs> I'm sorry for the time. It was, I, I, I was up till 1.30 last night just praying through this and just asking the Lord, like, what, how? How do we share this? How do we unpack this? How do we help? And um, I'm sorry that time has gone long for your patience. Um, So, Father, thank you that we have you to rely on. Thank you that we have your word that gives us a center, that gives us a foundation that honestly is supreme. So help us 
to love our leaders. Help us to um, love all people. Help us to want your fullness. Help us to be thankful in all circumstances because your grace has all of us. We pray these things in your mighty name, Jesus. Amen.